welcome to episode 344 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing you the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 344, we have two special guests. We have Anthony Gomes, who is uh, kind of a veteran rock blues guitarist, uh, who's going to be coming in to do the Pittsburgh Blues and Roots Festival. And we also have a new band we're going to introduce to you in a little bit called Greta Van Fleet out of Michigan. So... First, we're going to turn our attention to the Pittsburgh Blues and Roots Festival. Uh, that is, you can find more information on that at pghbluesrootsfest.com, or you can head over to ironcityrocks.com, and we'll have a link for you. Uh, Anthony Gomes, a guitarist who's been around for uh, probably about 15, um, going on 20 years, uh, doing a great blend of blues and rock. Uh, Anthony was cool enough to talk to us about the festival and all the things going on with his career. Uh, really an intelligent musician, so it was a, a pleasure to talk to him. So let's give you a taste of his music. This is Whiskey Train. We're going to get into that conversation with Anthony Gomes. Thank you. 
my pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have Anthony Gomes on the line. How are you doing, Anthony? Oh, man, I'm doing great, doing excellent. Thank you for asking. Now, you are coming in to do the Pittsburgh Blues and Roots Festival this year, uh, which is you know kind of an annual tradition in Pittsburgh, and I'm something... I'm sure something you do in quite a number of towns, uh, you know, doing the kind of music you do. Um, is this kind of a busy season for you touring-wise? Um, yeah, yeah. July and yeah, July and August are um, equivalent to December in retail. Okay. Um, we're, yeah, we're <laughs> you know where we wish there were 30 days in July. Uh, because the gigs are great, yeah, the gigs are great. The crowds are are big, and um, and the compensation is uh, quite favorable. So yeah, we're we're it's a it's it's a win on all accounts. So uh, just wanted to get a chance to get you on the show, talk a little bit. Um, I know I've been following your career for some time, you know, as a fan of the blues music myself, but really wanted to get you on the show, talk uh, you know for our audience. Um, can you give a little bit of background? You've been doing music for about almost 20 years now, uh, you know, making recordings, but can you kind of talk us through your career just a little bit? Sure. Um, I started with my first release in 1998 called Blues and Technicolor, and the year before we had won uh, Buddy Guy's Best Unsigned Blues Band competition in Chicago. And that sort of moved our career from uh, a local to more of a regional thing. And um, with the success of our first CD, we started to, to tour. And um, by 2002, we'd released our third album, Unity. And that was one that broke us to a, a wider audience. And uh, we toured behind that one for four years. And we'd been nominated in one uh, Blues Wax, uh, which was a, a big blues pub online publication at mm -hmm. that time uh, artist of the year and so we were making some noise doing that and um at the end of the 2000s uh i did a side project called new soul cowboys for about a year and a half which was a southern rock um sort of concept thing and then um in the begin around 2010 um i came back to doing blues rock exclusively and uh We've put out three albums since then, and we're working on our fourth. And um, it's yeah, things have been going very well. Let me ask you this, because you were you were very close in age to, to myself, um, you know, and, and you debuted in 1998, uh, as you mentioned. Um, at the time, obviously, Stevie Ray Vaughan, I think his legacy was you know still kind of heavy on the music scene. But were there other musicians, or were you a um, you know an Albert King, Albert Collins kind of uh, disciple at that time? Um, well, you know, uh, man, I love them all. Um, uh, just like anybody else, I was into rock that was blues influenced. Okay. Um, I like my I like my rock and roll bluesy, and I like my blues rocking. Uh, so, I, you know, I like the Stones and Van Halen and Jimi Hendrix and Clapton. And um, to me, Stevie was the first guy. Him and Jeff Healy that. Um, it, they were sort of rooted. Their music stylistically was more blues based than blues influenced. Let's say, right, right. and uh, oh man, I was really into that. Um, and once I got into Stevie, I wanted to dig deeper, and I got into BB King, and that was a profound, profound influence. Um, and then from there, you know, my heroes were um, 
sort of my my heroes just expanded. Um, people like you know Albert King, of course, and Freddie King, and Buddy Guy, and Albert Collins, and Otis Rush. Um, but Albert Collins was—I really dug his uh, his intensity, and uh, so yeah. So along with Richie Blackmore and uh, uh, you know Jeff Beck and Jimi Hendrix and Stevie, I also had the, the you know Otis Rush and the Three Kings and right. um, Elmore James, and uh, that was my foundation. Uh, and actually, to this day, still continues to be. Right now. Um You've seen kind of some ebb and flow in blues music, and it seems, you know, there always seems to be that kind of, you know, one minute it's hot, next minute it kind of cools off. Um, how how do you maintain, you know, making a career out of it through the ups and the downs of it? I mean, is it just you kind of build a loyal audience and they support you pretty well? You know, here's what I find with the new music industry. Um, I find less of that. I find that uh, in the mainstream blues, you know, has its peaks and valleys. But in today's music economy, you make and create your own art, uh, audience, and um, that's very exciting to me because before there were um, sort of stylistic barriers. Well, you can't play this and you can't play that. Now, I mean, there's ukulele virtuosos right. <laughs> selling a lot of records. Because you're going to the fans directly, you're going to music listeners directly, and instead of being some homogenous uh, um, fluff that appeals to a mass audience, now you can be very particular and, and service your niche audiences. Right. And um, so, to me, uh, I'm noticing the exact opposite. Every day, we're getting bigger. Um, not by leaps and bounds, but you know, one fan at a time or a dozen fans at a time, sure. and that to me is exciting. Um, so I, I I understand your question, but I, in, in my feeling today, at the level that we're at, that's less of an issue. Yeah, and it's it's good. You know, you bring up a great point. I mean, you think in in nineteen eight, let's say nineteen eighty seven, nineteen eighty eight, you know everyone was looking for Columbia's version of the next Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. But in today's right. industry, you're not dictated by, you know, a, a label trying to compete, you know, Epic trying to find who Sony has on their label. You know, you can just be who you are uh, and make the, you know, the music you're true to. Yes, and, and as long as you have a marketing plan and as long mm -hmm. as people genuinely like what you're doing, um, you know, uh, yeah, and and it's interesting because uh, Joe Bonamassa was a real big catalyst in this, and he's he's been an influence on people independent of the blues genre. Right. Um, where him and his management uh, business team said, "Hey, you know, we got this guy, and you know, just like every artist, he's got his strengths and weaknesses. Let's market his strengths, get him out there, and people will like it." and they didn't take no for an answer and now you know they're playing theaters and without a hit song too which yeah. is which is a, a, a new model meaning that people go to his shows because they know they'll have an entertaining night of music um but they're not going to hear a hit song um which is a departure you know from from where things have been yeah so yeah it's quite interesting you're absolutely right i find you know i, I know in in watching the Giovanna Massa DVD sometimes the you know the 
behind the scenes of JNR Adventures portion of those videos are almost as fascinating as the concerts themselves. You know, to see the model they've put, and you know, we kind of joke that they've got sort of the the Blues Walmart on his website, and um, you know how they do things is really. I think everyone, you know, and you mentioned independent of genre, should just kind of stand up and take notice of this this technique that they're using because it is certainly a game changer in, in a lot of ways. You know. Well, yeah, you know, it used to be, um, and the old model used to be you would get signed to a record label, mm -hmm. and the only reason you would get signed to a label was you could get radio airplay and distribution into record stores. Well, record stores are pretty much a niche thing now. Yeah. Uh, the number one retailers are Amazon and iTunes. So for $50, anybody can have their album at the two biggest retailers, yeah. um, either if you do it through TuneCore or CD Baby. So distribution is no longer a thing. Um, arguably, radio is dead. Um, aside from country radio, um, radio is not breaking any new acts. Um, they're simply uh, catering to people my age and older, which yes. is, you know, 40s. Um, hey, let's do another double shot of Led Zeppelin. Uh, so, it, it, you know, and, and I love Zeppelin, but uh, they're, they're not really creating anything new. So for an act, radio is not important anymore. YouTube is the new radio, or um, really, or streaming, or Spotify is the new yeah. radio, and uh, you can do everything independently. And now, with Facebook advertising, or any sort of advertising, I can find out anybody who likes Stevie Ray Vaughan that lives in Boise, Idaho. And if we have a gig there, you know, we can market to those people. And, you know, many of them will like what we're doing because it's stylistically close. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's, it's a totally new thing. And, and Joe and some other artists, too, were on, uh, you know, they saw those changes and they, they reacted to them. And, uh, and artists like ourselves have been doing that as well and picking mm -hmm. up on that. And it's exciting. It, it really is. Yeah, fascinating to hear you mention about, you know, the social media aspect. Uh, how much... You know, of your time, would you say goes into these, you know, these marketing efforts, the email campaigns, the making sure, you know, your merch is what people are after, you know, that you're hitting the, the demographics, being that you're an independent artist like that. How much, you know, of your day do you do you anticipate in that arena? Well, I try, I try to practice two hours a day um, on the guitar and I try to do at least the same on social media. Okay. Uh, yeah, so um, I'm I'm answering messages, or you know, I design all our merch. Mm -hmm. um, I do all that sort of stuff. Now it's raining out. Can you hear this coming through your phone? Is it just a little too bit loud yeah. for you? No, it's it's fine. Okay, um, but anyway, yeah. So uh, as far as servicing merch for your fans, man, you never know what people want. And yeah. that's the that's the funny thing, you know. Some people want the big picture of your face on the shirt. Other people want a little logo. <laughs> yeah. So you got to create something for everybody. Yeah, and I think that's a, something that I think a lot of independent you know musicians should kind of take a listen to and why I ask, you know, because I think it's more than just you know you need to be a technical master at your instrument. Uh, you know, you need to make good recordings, but you need to understand what people want to buy you know if you're serious about making a living out of it you know you've got to have your finger on the pulse of you know what technology can do for you um 
you know, instead of waiting for someone else to make a break for you. Um, yeah, I'm, I, you know, it's no different than any other business. It's the mm. music business. But if right. you've invented the best hammer in the world and nobody knows about it, you're not going to sell any hammers. Yeah. Um, or, or, you know, whatever you've invented. If you have the best album in the world but only your mom and dad know about it, yeah. guess what? You've sold two copies. So yeah. um, it, it's really, how bad do you want it? It used to be, you know, you have to starve and sleep on a couch and move to L.A. or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now you have to starve and sleep on the couch and uh, learn how to send out a mass email. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, and I don't particularly like doing that stuff. I'd rather be playing my guitar or doing something else, but I love playing my guitar so much that I will do those two hours uh, a day or what have you um, that well, I need to do. Well said, yeah, yeah. You love it playing it so much that it's worth doing, and that's a great point, you know. And it's obviously something, I mean, artists can pay other people to do that, but then that's less, you know, less money you have to live on to feed your family and, you know, put a roof over your head. Um, and, you know, and also, too, one extra point, they don't have your personal touch as an artist. Sure. Like, they don't know what you feel and think, and, and that's so important. Uh, social media is such a personal thing, so... Um, we've had other people do things in the past and um, I felt like it wasn't representative of what we stood for so uh, I, I think you just kind of got to put those hours in and then when you get to be Eric Clapton well then people yeah. I guess expect that you they won't have that access to you um, than they would would say a, you know a, a, an, an artist that's somewhere halfway on, on their way up to the, in that journey you know well said, well said. Um, one thing I noticed on your website that, that it intrigued me, um, you know, as I, I do these interviews and I, I do some homework and listen to you know the albums and things like that, I noticed in your in your merch uh, you've got what was your master's thesis. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, I went to the University of Toronto and studied cultural history, American cultural history, and. Um, you know, I was really into the blues, and and I de- decided to write my paper on the racial evolution of blues music. Um, I joke that I'm white and Canadian, which makes me white twice. Yeah. Um, and uh, here I am trying to figure out what's my place in the blues. You know, I'm in another country from where it started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, do I have a right to play the blues? Um, where do I fit in? And and what happened to the blues? Because at one point it was exclusively African-American, and then 10 years later it was integrated, um, both on stage and in the audience. So um, I was deeply fascinated by this. What happened? What created this? And um, and it was a wonderful journey, and uh, uh, at the end of it I realized that we all have a right to play and, and listen and participate in the blues. So... Um, it was a, a wonderful journey. Now, do you feel as, as an artist, it sounds like a fascinating read, I think I might have to pick that up. Um, do you feel ever feel anything from the audience in, in respect, as you mentioned, you are kind of being white twice, if I'm not mistaken, you have a French-Canadian mother, is that correct? Yes, yes, yes. Portuguese dad and French-Canadian mom. Yeah. Now, you know, even if it had been British-Canadian, you could say, okay, she's got the British blues, but you don't think of the French and, and right. the blues. So um, do you feel anything from the audience in that regard ever? Or there ever been in a, a situation where that, you know, you felt especially, you know, kind of out of place? 
Well, you know, it was interesting when I started 20 years ago, um, I felt a lot uh, more discrimination then. Um, and a lot of it was on my age too. Yeah. Um, because it was like, Oh, well, you know, you're, you're 20 years old. What do you know about the blues kid? You know, but, mm. uh, in the late nineties, we lost a lot of blues artists, Junior Wells, Luther Allison, Johnny Copeland. And I think that that made people realize in the blues community to some degree that, Oh, we have to nurture the farm team because they're the future. Right. And um, so, and then all of a sudden you had Johnny Lang and Kenny Wayne Shepherd, and it was really cool to be young and like the blues right. and play the blues. Um, and uh, occasionally I've uh, been on the receiving end uh, of, of, let's say, discrimination, but more on a business side. You, you know, there were mm. some clubs in Chicago that wouldn't book uh, occasions to play blues. Right. And it, their argument was, hey, we have a lot of international tourists and they don't want to see some kid from Canada play the blues. You know, that's not a, a, an authentic experience to them. Yeah. Um, you know, sort of like if you go to a, you know, they want their cars German and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, their chef's French. And, you know, if you have an Asian guy cooking French cuisine to them, it doesn't seem like it's, it's right. But uh, a lot has changed. You know, a lot has changed for the better. And, um, you know, I, in some ways, in some respects, I felt, especially early on, I had to work twice as hard to prove myself. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I was I was for the challenge. And um, I always believe you, you need to use your strengths and your weaknesses, whatever they may be perceived as, to your advantage. And um, I Yeah, it's a fascinating. I appreciate you indulging the question. I, I was kind of thinking of, you know, Ralph Macchio in uh, Crossroads, you know, kind of being in that situation where you've got this kind of nerdy kid walking into this room full of people, uh, you know, and then him just throwing it down and, and, you know, blowing people away. And I think at that point it kind of does transcend race, or at least I like to think it does, you know, so. Uh, music does. Music is such an expression of humanity, and it is such a bridge between people. Mm -hmm. Um that it does it on all aspects. You know, yeah. the Beatles were such a, a powerful thing, and they refused to play to segregated audiences. And people couldn't deny that in the 60s, in 1964. Yeah. Um, what a huge, huge thing. So uh, it goes both ways, and it, it's always, all different ways, beyond black and white. Um, and I think it just reminds us that we're not that dissimilar from one another. Yeah, that's excellent. That's available again for anybody's interested. It's on your website, Anthony Gomes' website, uh, under the merch, the black and white blues, black and white of blues. Uh, is that available like in an ebook edition, or is it? Uh... Uh, currently, just exclusively in uh, in uh, hard copy. Okay. All right. Cool. All right. Well, again, you're going to be in Pittsburgh doing the Blues and uh, Roots Festival. That's July 22nd uh, in Cheswick. You're going to be uh, up up. Uh, near the end of the show on Saturday night, if I recall correctly. Uh, so we look forward to seeing when you come into town and, and just blowing us away, man. Oh, thank you, man. We're, we're super excited. And, uh, and, uh, Pittsburgh's a wonderful, wonderful music town. And we have a lot of friends and, uh, it's going to be a great night of music. All right. Again, the Pittsburgh blues and roots festival that's going on July 22nd, 23rd. Uh, that is at the, Shrine, Sirius Shrine Center in Cheswick, Pennsylvania. Again, the website PGH Blues Roots Fest. 
Com. Got the entire lineup. Uh, be really worth checking out supporting this music in the, the western Pennsylvania area. So without further ado, we're going to turn our attention now to a, a new band out of Michigan. I'm really making a big scene, a uh, big splash on the scene, I should say. Uh, we're going to talk to Danny Wagner of the band Greta Van Fleet. Uh, the uh, influences of this band, I think, go without saying. We'll give you a little taste of uh, their first single. And uh, we'll let you be the judge of what you think of it. Uh, I think it's a fantastic album. This is Highway Tune from Greta Van Fleet, and then we'll get into that interview with Danny. gentlemen my pleasure to welcome to the show from the van greta van fleet we have danny wagner on the line how are you doing today danny i am doing very well how about yourself i'm doing awesome um you guys have a debut ep i, I guess you would call it a debut um with the black smoke rising that um i'll admit you know came across you know the wire and i gave it a, a quick listen and immediately kind of stopped in my tracks um not <laughs> something we hear every day uh, this style of music. Um, so I wanted, to, you know, first off, wh- where is the band from? Uh, just to get an idea of where you guys are, you know, from in the world. Yeah, we're from uh, Frankenmuth, Michigan. Um, okay. It's about an hour, maybe slightly over an hour north of Detroit. Okay. So, uh, I mean, obviously the band has a very, um, I think a lot of classic rock fans would be kind of gravitate to the music. Um, was that where you guys were in a headspace kind of growing up? and what you were into listening to? Yeah, absolutely. We uh I speak for the uh the other three guys as well, but we had we had vinyls laying around as a kid and we had just a bunch of albums and we it was kind of like a vinyl playground if you will. Mm-hmm. Um we uh we it's really all we grew up with. We grew up playing it. Um their parents played music, my mother played music. Mm-hmm. We uh you know, it's just it's just kind of what we were surrounded by growing up and that's all we were really surrounded by so that's what we um, came to learn and love yeah I mean I, I was going to guess you know looking at the picture of the band that you guys are probably not you know many days over 20 if that um, so <laughs> I'm guessing these are, these would be your parents albums um, do you felt like you know the, the music of your era was, was it just something of the availability of the records or was it just something that left you flat about the music that you know most teenagers kind of gravitate to which you know anymore is hip hop and you know things like that what was the draw of the classic rock um it really was honestly just influenced by 
what it, it goes about half and half. It goes about um, 50% of what we were exposed to mm-hmm. as um, young individuals. And then about the other half is was left up to us what we really mm-hmm. wanted to do. Because like you said, there was that there was this modern sound that was floating around. But um, I didn't listen to <laughs> mainstream radio hardly at all because that was I was never behind right. the wheel of my own car you know my my parents were always listening and yeah we had cds in all at all times and you know i just i just it's not like i was forced to like it i just i really loved it <laughs> i always asked to, to turn it on and you know i always loved playing with it and learning the new old bands and i thought that's honestly as i was growing up i thought that's all there was <laughs> i didn't i didn't even i wasn't even totally aware until you know i had gotten slightly older that there were other types of music um following the modern scene Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, kudos to your parents, um, all of your parents collectively, then for for getting you to think that way. Cause, <laughs> Absolutely. You know, you know, a lot of people from your generation, it's not a knock on it, but you know, it's it's the hip hops, the Drake, and and things like that, or it's you know, Pierce the Veil and Slipknot. So you either get right. you know, very you know, kind of urban sounds or extreme metal sounds uh, with a lot of yeah, bands. Yeah, that's it's, true. But uh, it's really interesting to hear now. What kind of drew you to the drums in particular? Was that kind of, you know, everybody kind of divvied up instruments and you you were the guy who was left standing with the drums or was that something you were drawn to naturally? It's uh it's actually very interesting. Um I I was a guitar player my entire life basically. Mm-hmm. You know, since I was 6 years old, um about 12 years I've been playing guitar and it wasn't until the end of middle school when I had really received a drum kit mm-hmm. and my parent my parents got me a drum kit i just I, I that was when i started wanting to learn how to play a bunch of different instruments i i, I inherited a bass um played french horn um piano uh with my sister and mm-hmm. and then eventually you know the drums came around and they were one of the last instruments that i learned how to play and it just so happened that um the the original greta van fleet band was going through um, a bit of a, a situation with their old drummer, mm-hmm. and it was it was written on the wall, you know, that he was no longer going to be um, with them. And you know, they kind of contacted me and said, "Hey, you know, you're our you're the first other person we know that knows how to play drums. Like, what do you would you be willing, you know, to, to just jam around with us, not on guitar, but on drums, just to see what what kind of happens?" And I was like, "Absolutely." And then as soon as that happened. Uh, and I realized that you know it's I could totally do this. I finally bought my first actual nice kit, <laughs> and then we kind of just took it off from there. It's off and running. Now, did you know the guys in the band before that? I mean, were these like guys you went to school with? Um, you know, I'm assuming it's not a major metropolis where you're living, but maybe I'm, I'm misjudging. <laughs> right? Um, was it yeah, kind of like you were you, you were the four like rock and roll guys in your class, and you know you were drawn together naturally, or were these you know? Did you meet yeah, them definitely. The, band? the uh the I knew him before. The other guys I didn't know him as well. Mm-hmm. Um but the uh the other three are brothers, the two older brothers are twins, they're twenty one. So there's and um the other the younger brothers in my grade. So mm-hmm. I've known him since kindergarten, basically. We we weren't really um super close friends until the end of middle school, going into high school, you know, when the band was mm-hmm. going. But he and I are eighteen. Um the other two are 21 and you know like I said and so they were three years above us but we all went to the same school mm-hmm. we all knew each other really um, it was just a matter of 
getting to have that experience playing music together because we were also the only kids, you know, at the time that really were into instruments outside of school. Yeah. Now, were you in, like, the school band, or was this, you were just kind of did this as a hobby more so? I was in, um, I was in school band for six or seven years. Okay. Um, playing French horn. So I had, I had that sort of experience, but it, it really was nothing compared to, to this sort of experience. Mm-hmm. I'll be quite honest. Um, so jumping from, it was easy to jump from that because I'd always, I'd always had music in the blood and I know I was, I became very aware that they, um, were similar mm-hmm. and I thought that was so cool and I had to at least get to know them a little more than I already did. Mm-hmm. Now, from from a tr- perspective of someone who's played guitar, and you mentioned you play bass, and obviously the French horn, you you've got you know some musical background. Do do you get involved with the songwriting, uh, you know, the material of the band, or you know, do you just kind of do the drum parts? Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> the songwriting goes pretty much evenly four ways, and that's why we established uh, uh, an even fourth twenty five percent writing mm-hmm. credit for all of us because I feel we, we all felt like that was the best way and it was honestly the most accurate way um, all the songs were written differently we didn't we don't write them we don't have a formula to writing the songs a lot of the times they just write themselves but yeah there, there, there are definitely a few songs where I've had uh, some input in musically yeah. other than drums <laughs> yeah and, and it's good, good you get that you know the uh, writing credit stuff kind of ironed out because you know that's always stuff for the memoirs you know 30 years from exactly. now when, when I'm buying your book to read about you know what it was like after the big stadium tour and the big blowout you guys well you know you can argue about writing credits at that point um, right now obviously when you listen to the band uh, you know there's there's a bleed over of the influence of Led Zeppelin into the music and I don't I don't know that you guys necessarily try to hide that and it would be kind of crazy too um, was Zeppelin kind of the top of what everybody had in common you know, yeah, we we definitely do not hide it. Um, we just, you know, if people understand that we aren't intentionally going for it, then mm-hmm. that's totally, it's a mutual understanding. I mean, mm-hmm. there are sure. ma- there are so many worse things to be compared to. Oh, <laughs> we, absolutely. We, uh, we definitely looked up to the best. They are uh, they are legends of rock and roll, and that's, you know, there's not really much else <laughs> that we can say about that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, they were, they were, they were uh, part of a huge selection of, British invasion influences that we all shared. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I listened to it and it, it you know some of it does remind me of almost like the David Coverdale era of Deep Purple, um, mm-hmm. which is really cool. Um, in particular, you're you're um in your drumming. You know what I'm hearing is whoever did the engineering and, and the uh, recording of your snare drum really nailed an awesome drum sound. Was that something you guys really worked on, or is it just stick a mic it came out great it was uh it was so it's you know al sutton's our producer and when we first met him he uh he kind of got that initial vibe from the very beginning so before we even started recording we started discussing how we wanted to Mm -hmm. mic the drums and then you know i i basically told him how i i you know my preferences and i told him how i kept my snare and you know we kind of worked out um a classic, a very classic rock style of miking drums. Right. And, uh, you know, we, it, was a, it was a little bit of trial and error, but uh, we eventually, you know, it came pretty quickly. We, we got that initial sound, and we were like, yeah, that's that's uh, 
that's definitely something we can work off of. So it's you know it's pretty consistent and uh, it's just about half and half again. Yeah, it kind of it kind of just came <laughs> itself. Yeah. Well, kudos to you because I mean, as a person who's listened to a lot of music and a lot of different genres, you know, as I'm listening to these songs, you know, the first, second go through, I'm just thinking, boy, that is such a beautiful snare drum sound. And, you know, maybe it's, you know, coming off of listening to some, you know, more modern Metallica where the, I hated the snare drum. Um, yeah. Your recording really sounded great in that regard. Plus, Thank you. I, I think your drumming style you know with a, a four-piece band and obviously you've got some organ and things like that in addition to guitar and bass but it really fills the sound sonically very well um thank you very much <laughs> now it's a live band is it just still a four-piece or do you add a, a keyboard player or does someone in the band kind of dabble in keys uh sam the bass player is a phenomenal keyboard player and he has the bass pedals so when we play when we play live um very often we he is our keyboard player and he'll fill in the bass parts with his feet it's it's pretty it's pretty awesome to watch so he's your, he's your but, getty uh, lee in the band he is our he is our getty lee or our uh john paul jones if you will yeah, absolutely absolutely now yeah. as far as live gigs i know you have you have a couple kind of showcase looking uh shows in the summer and then some dates more towards the fall are you guys looking at you know, kind of securing a, a pretty thorough tour in the U.S., or is there a particular country you guys are kind of honing in on? Yeah, um, we we had one tour um, in May with the Struts, and that was in basically towards the East Coast and also hit up some Midwest areas. Mm-hmm. And it was only for 10 days, and, you know, we were a supporting act. But this August, starting the 15th, we are... We've solidified our own headlining tour, okay. and it's going to be around the same area, but it'll be from August 15th till September 2nd. Okay. So it's a, it's a pretty good chunk of time. I mean, there are a couple areas that are actually kind of near Pittsburgh from that tour. I guess I think we're playing in Cleveland and Columbus, Ohio. Yeah. That uh, we get we get used to that. I think a lot of like hard rock and, and metal fans uh, kind of are used to having to go to Ohio or into you know towards Philly to see yeah. some, some younger bands. Um, do you guys ha- have plans at this point, or maybe this is kind of a question about the state of what a new band goes through? Is a full-length album still something you guys look at as, as a must-have, or is the absolutely EP sings? okay? Yeah, we we the original idea of an EP was um, just kind of to to feel the waters, I guess. You mm-hmm. know, to get that sort of that sense of all right, how. Uh, how much can this music really make an impact? Because we were all so confused ourselves, and we, we you know, we all really believed in what we were doing, but we wanted to kind of get the idea and see. And the EP just is doing very well. And so, so what happens is now we will most likely release um, a full-length album in the next year. Um, you know, we just haven't really had much time to record. <laughs> and the EP has been doing well, and we've been supporting it. We've been we've been gone every week, basically. So it's you know as soon as we get that time, we're gonna we're gonna get back into the studio and and finish the full length album. Awesome, awesome. Well, if it's anything like the EP, uh, I think people are gonna be blown away. I mean, honestly, you could take the e, the four four songs I believe it is on the Black Smoke Rising, and put yep. you know seven filler tracks in it and still have a great album. Um, yeah. So uh, I think you guys have certainly paved the way and. Um, it's fantastic here, and Danny, I wish you guys all the best. Hopefully, we'll see you in Pittsburgh soon, and I want to thank you for your time, man. Absolutely. Thank you.
Here comes Government Mule, live in concert. One night on this 13th, Stage AE, Government Mule. Special guest, Galactic. Tickets are on sale now at Ticketmaster.com or the Stage AE box office. Feel the kick of Government Mule, presented by Promo West North Shore and Coors Light. All right, that about wraps it up for episode 344. We want to invite you to check out our website, ironcityrocks.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube are all forward slash ironcityrocks, or you can reach us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com. Big thank you to Anthony Gomes for coming on the show. His website is anthonygomes.com, and also Greta Van Fleet, a really cool up-and-coming band. They've got a four-song EP out right now, um, Really, as as I said in the interview, and I wasn't really blowing smoke, you take those four songs and you could put seven garbage tracks with them, and you would still make a fantastic album. So really worth a listen, especially if you're a fan of like that 70s uh, kind of British blues rock. So hope you enjoyed checking that out. And until next time, we want to thank you so much for listening. Uh